0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony,
1: well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast.
2: So there's porn on the internet still. Even in our post fosta dystopia, you can find porn on the internet. Now, I've talked about FOSTA-SESTA before. We've talked about it a lot, and I don't want to belabor it. But a quick refresher: FOSTA-SESTA was signed into law last year. It imposes fines and prison time on owners and managers of tech companies whose platforms are, whether the owners know it or not, being used by sex workers. The law is so broadly worded that it not only made it impossible for sex workers to share information online about safety, to find clients, and crucially, to warn each other about dangerous clients, it prompted major tech companies to start censoring sexual content just to be on the safe side, to protect themselves, not to protect sex workers. The law is so broadly and vaguely worded, as Vox pointed out at the time that it passed, That tech companies immediately began pulling down all sorts of sexual content. It's why we don't have Craigslist personals anymore. It's why Tumblr banned adult content. It's also why sex work is now more dangerous than it was a year ago. Post-assessed pushed sex workers off the internet and back onto the streets, making consensual sex work more dangerous, not less dangerous, and making people doing sex work more vulnerable to sex traffickers and violent pimps, not less vulnerable. Even the police, no friends of sex workers say that the passage of Foste Cesta has made it harder for them to find and help people who are being forced to do sex work against their will. Now, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to rant for a little bit about how Foste Cesta seems to be impacting us here. Facebook no longer allows ads for quote-unquote adult content. You can still buy ads on Facebook for family planning and contraception, but those ads must focus on, and I quote, the contraceptive features of the product and not on sexual pleasure. Facebook didn't have to do that to be in compliance with Fostecesta, banning ads for adult content, banning family planning and contraception ads that might mention sexual pleasure. But again, tech companies have begun censoring sexual content since the passage of Fostecesta. And as a result of the ban on adult content, we can no longer advertise Hump on Facebook or Instagram, which Facebook also owns. And this is bullshit. Hump, our little porn film festival now in its 14th year, features short films made by amateurs. You know how a lot of people say they dislike porn because it's dehumanizing? Not the porn at Hump. The porn you see at Hump is very deeply humanizing porn. Hump films are made by friends and lovers, and the films range from comedic shorts to animation to erotica to softcore to hardcore. And our Facebook business account was shuttered, and we are no longer allowed to advertise or promote or let people know about Hump on Facebook or Instagram. Hate, violence, murder, genocide, and Myanmar, all of that has a home on Facebook. But human beings, friends and lovers expressing their affection for each other and enjoying themselves with their genitals out sometimes, no, we cannot have That And that's not what we were putting on Facebook. We weren't putting hump films on Facebook. We were just advertising screenings of the hump film festival on Facebook. So while there's porn all over the Internet, we can't advertise our screenings in movie theaters. Hump films are never released online because I don't know why exactly. To be honest, Hump's mission at the start wasn't to normalize the diversity of human sexual expression, as I like to say on this show. When it comes to human sexuality, variance is the norm, and the sooner people get that through their heads, the happier and more content they're going to be and less conflicted. And Hump's mission at the start wasn't to show all the diverse ways we express our gender. We wanted Hump to be entertaining, and it was, and it still is. But it quickly became clear that our Dirty Little Film Festival, in part because it was entertaining— actually was helping to normalize the diversity of human sexual expression and gender expression. Whether you're gay, trans, intersex, asexual, kinky, dom, sub, male, female, non-binary, rich, poor, non-monogamous, monogamous, monogamous, or straight, you were welcome at Hump, up on the screen and in the audience. And speaking of the audiences, one of my favorite things about being at a Hump screening is watching the audience and not the films. I've already seen the films like hundreds of times by the time we open the festival. Uh, and I watch the audience, and there's this amazing thing that happens. You know, at a hump screening, there are 20, 24, 25 films, five minutes or less gay, straight, queer, genderqueer, trans, kinky, vanilla, all over the map. And the audiences are diverse. And and what you see when you look out at the audience is you see straight guys watching k-porn. You see gay guys watching cunnilingus on the big screen. You see vanilla people watching kink porn. You see cis people watching porn made by trans people, not for cis people necessarily, but to express themselves. And there's this thing that you see, which is for the first, you know, third of the screening, people are kind of knocked back in their seats They have the wind taken out of them because all they see is what's not theirs, what's different. Not my preferred sex partners, not my kind of gender expression, not the kinks that I enjoy, whatever. They just see the differences and people are a little knocked back in their seats. They have wind knocked out of them. But then this thing happens about a third of the way through, half of the way through. Nobody's knocked back in their seats anymore. Everybody's cheering and clapping for every film. Even when a film comes along that's really different from all the films they've seen before, people are just psyched and into it. And no longer having the wind knocked out of them, no longer being thrown back in their seats. And I think what happens at a hump screening, particularly a packed one, is there's just this moment where the audience flips where suddenly they go from only being able to see what's different and what's not theirs to being able to see in each film what is theirs and what's the same. Because under that thin veneer of difference around sexual orientation, gender expression, kinks, under that is everything that we share that is the same. Desire, passion, connection, intimacy, vulnerability, a sense of humor about ourselves and our sexualities and our genders. All of that is the same. And people click into it. They get it. And there's this moment when you watch the audience where you can see that happen. So when people found out about Hump and they'd get to Hump, even if they came just to, you know, be tantalized or scandalized, they also got this rare look into the passions and desires of those who might be different than they are. You know, when you watch porn at home, sitting in front of the computer, you only click on what you want to see when you come to Hump. We're clicking for you. And that resulted often in people having this kind of epiphany, particularly straight people who came to Hump. And by banning our ads, by making it harder for people to find out about Hump, it makes it harder for people to have that epiphany, harder for people to create and experience a different kind of porn, but also harder for people to realize that, Yeah, under that thin veneer of difference, we are all the same-ish. Anyway, it seems incredibly hypocritical to me to ban advertising for a thing as good and fun and, for some people, healing as hump because you want to keep information about this particular kind of porn. Frankly, a kind of porn, I think, is a better kind of porn than most of the porn you can find online. You want to keep information about that kind of porn, ads about that kind of porn, Off the internet. Off Facebook and off Instagram, which for now means off the internet. With this in mind, I want to ask you all to do me a favor. I want to ask everybody to follow us, follow Hump on your social media platforms, and sign up on our website for our mailing list, humpfilmfest.com, so you can hear about Hump when it's coming to your town, get Hump updates, find out about new events. And unfortunately, to do that, we need you to follow us on facebook and instagram but also twitter at hump film fest we can't advertise on facebook or instagram right now but we are stuck with facebook and instagram right now and we're relying on you we're asking you to help us bring hump to new audiences by sharing about hump on your social media platforms since since we are no longer allowed to advertise hump on those same social media platforms All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your Q's, lots of my A's, and Jennings Brown, a reporter for Gizmodo, joins us to talk about a recent guest on the Savage Lovecast who apparently lied to us about a whole bunch of things, and on the Magnum, extra Q&A for you this week. All that coming up on today's show.
0: Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-year-old lady living in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm... Faced with a dilemma, my best friend, who is also 20, recently eloped with someone who she's only known for about six months total, and not only did she marry someone who I consider to be a perfect stranger, but I found out through Facebook. Another important thing to know is that he has a four-year-old daughter whose mother isn't in the picture. My friend has a history of rushing into dating extremely questionable and at times abusive characters, and because of this, I don't know if I trust the person she's married. She lives far away, so I've not been able to meet her husband or the little girl, so I don't know how to feel about them. Because of all of this, I've more or less distanced myself from her because we're going down drastically different paths, but she's guilting me for doing so. Am I wrong for distancing myself from this person who I believe is making, quite frankly, insane decisions without talking to anyone in our friend group or her family? Or should I just be accepting of this new lifestyle? I really don't want to lose one of my closest friends, but I really just don't know how to navigate the situation.
2: I don't want to condescend to you uh, or appear to condescend to you because I don't believe what I'm about to say is condescending to you about your age, but I don't want to appear to condescend to you about your age. You're 20 years old. You say that this is your best friend. By the end of the call, she's been downgraded from best friend to one of my closest friends, which is something that you say about someone who isn't your best friend. But let's say she's your best friend or has been for a while or was once. Presumably, you've known each other for More than a couple of years, if you're besties and she's among your closest friends. So presumably you've known this person since you were in high school. And one of the things that often happens to us in young adulthood doesn't always, and it doesn't have to, and it doesn't need to, but often it's the case that in young adulthood, after high school, into college, after college, some of the friends that we made in high school or college, some of the people we were particularly close to, often because we were confined To close quarters with that person, those relationships, those friendships fall away. There is a distancing process. And sometimes it's conscious choices. Sometimes it's they went to one school, you went to another, you form new friendships, they form new friendships. And although you remember each other fondly and you're grateful for having been friends and and still regard each other as friends, although less in each other's lives than in the past, there's this falling away. And that could be what's happening here. You two are, as you said, going off in different directions. She's making different choices. Perhaps she is making choices that you disapprove of or you question the soundness of, which is disapprove of adjacent. So, what do you do? Well, you're pulling away because why? Because You don't think she should have married this dude after six months. Perhaps you're angry that you had. Of course, you're angry. You mention it, and I think you mentioned it because you're angry about it. Although you don't emphasize your anger that you had to find out about this from fucking Facebook, that this person that you considered your best friend eloped with someone, married someone without not seeking your permission. She didn't need your permission to do that. She is an adult, but informing you, giving you a heads up, relying on you, perhaps the way she should have. Because if she's made questionable choices in the past about men, if she's gotten involved with shitty dudes, you say even abusive dudes, then, yeah, maybe she's one of those people who should run her relationships past a friend group so that if she's missing the red flags, her friends can point them out to her. That is what friends are for. And so she didn't rely on you the way you believe she should rely on you if she regards you as a best friend or a close friend, an intimate friend, and that hurt. And so you have an absolute right to pull away. You also have an absolute right to say, I think that was a stupid thing to do. You also have an absolute right to get on the phone with her and even after the elopement say, so tell me about this dude? And have you thought about this? And oh, hey, that thing you just told me about that dude that you are married to now suddenly and ill-advisedly, and I would have advised you against it had you asked for my advice in the run-up to it. That thing that you just mentioned is kind of a red flag. It's similar to red flags that you missed in previous relationships. But if your friend doesn't want to hear it, she doesn't want to hear it. And there's evidence that she doesn't want to hear it because she didn't tell you about it in advance. She didn't give you an opportunity to try to talk sense to her. So she may not want to hear whatever sensey things you want to say. You have a right to pull away. Your friend can guilt you for that. She has an absolute right to say that's a shitty thing to do. Just as you have a right to say that was a stupid thing to do. But I would leave her with this. If indeed you do pull away, I'm here for you. When and if you need to talk to someone about this or anything else, I'm still here for you. I can't be there for you in the way I was in the past. Just geographically. But I'm still here for you, so give me a call sometime. If you want to talk. Put the ball in her court, that'll assuage your guilt. Also, it'll let her know that if this relationship does come to shit, that she still has friends she can turn to for help and advice and counsel, and then maybe she will learn her lesson and turn to those same friends for help and advice and counsel before she enters into her next relationship.
3: Hi, Dan. I love you so much. However, I need to ask you, you are forgetting... Non binary, far too often, Um, when referencing especially young relationships, boyfriend and girlfriend, let's please just remove those terms altogether and start referring to them as lovers.
2: You know, I frequently, when I mention girlfriends or boyfriends, will toss in and be friends as well. Boyfriends, girlfriends, and be friends. But I'm not going to stop saying boyfriend and girlfriend, and I'm not going to use lovers in place of boyfriend and girlfriend. Lover has a different meaning in some contexts, can have entirely different connotations. People can interpret that differently. And it makes you sound like Pepe Le Pew if you run around referring to everyone's boyfriend or girlfriend or NB friend as their lover. So just going to have to buckle up. Endure, boyfriend, girlfriend. Thank you for the call. We always want to remember our non-binary identified friends, and I will use girlfriend, boyfriend, and NB friend try interchangeably as often as I can for representation's sake. But boyfriend and girlfriend are still terms that I am going to sling around, toss around on this program.
4: Hi, Dan. So I have probably like a good problem to have, which is that I'm having sex with two people right now and I'm having like the most sex I've ever had in my life. Um, And it's awesome. But one of these people is a friend uh, who's in my same graduate program. um, And we just it randomly sort of happened. Like we got drunk together one night and just have like wild, crazy animal sex. And I've been hooking up ever since. And it's probably the best sex I've ever had in my life. It's really great. And then right after that started, I met this other guy who I have clicked with so well, more so than anyone that I've dated in like years. And I enjoy spending time with him so much and we have so much fun together. And we recently had sex for the first time and like it was it was fine, like it was adequate, but like the same passionate energy wasn't there. And it was really hard not to compare it, which made me really feel weird and sad. And I definitely still plan to keep seeing this guy, but I worry that at a certain point, like he's going to want to be exclusive and I like him a lot, and I can see that happening, but I don't want to go up sleeping with this other guy, um, especially if I'm, like, giving it up for mediocre sex. And I'm sure, you know, as we get to know each other more, maybe the sex will become better, and that will be great. But, yeah, it's hard to to give up really good sex, um, even if it's for, like, a person who might be better. But now I find myself, when I'm fantasizing, I'm fantasizing about my friend that I'm sleeping with and not the guy that I like that I'm sleeping with. And if, you know, the choice comes between it, I want to sleep with my friend, even though that's definitely like we wouldn't date each other. That's going nowhere. But I say to also have a thing for sort of like unavailable people. So I don't know if this is me getting scared about the idea of being in a relationship. I have been single for like five years. So that is kind of scary for me, even though I really like this guy. Or I don't know if it's just like, you know, animal impulse of like not wanting to have good sex. So I would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you.
2: I would definitely file this one under good problems to have. Your fucking somebody that you really enjoy fucking, that you're friends with, so it's somebody you also like, and then there's this other guy that you click with emotionally and enjoy spending time with, and you are seriously considering dating, and you've only fucked that guy once, and the sex wasn't great, but you've got two really good guys, a friend that you have great sex with, and somebody you're kind of sort of casually dating right now that you have a great time with, but the sex wasn't there the first time. Now, sometimes people catch a groove. Sometimes the sex is great from the start. Sometimes people just click, and sometimes it can take a little bit for two people to ramp up to carve a groove in each other, to find what works, to really uh, relax. Maybe he was nervous, maybe he was tense because the emotional stakes are higher. Or maybe you were nervous or you were tense because the emotional stakes are higher in this relationship. So the sex feels more consequential. And you both went into it being a little bit more self-conscious about it and more inhibited about it. And that made the sex less awesome. And that could be a problem that works itself out over time. You know that expression, cross the bridge when you come to it? Well, sometimes you Don't need to suck that dick till you come to it either. You're in a bit of a race here, a race between this guy asking you, the guy that you like, the guy with whom the sex wasn't great, asking you to go exclusive to be his girlfriend or boyfriend or non-binary friend, and the sex getting good. If by the time he asks you that, the sex is good to great, and you're fantasizing more and more about him and less and less about the sex you could be having with Mr. Awesome Sex then going exclusive becoming sexually exclusive with the guy that you clicked with emotionally that you could see as a partner won't be scared, won't be a problem that you have a good or bad problem it just won't be a problem at all so only time will tell if by the time he asks to go exclusive the sex still is lousy and unsatisfying and all you can think about when you're masturbating is the other guy don't go exclusive and probably end the relationship it 's important to prioritize sexual compatibility and sexual satisfaction in a long term relationship. Anybody who listens to this show should know that, even if i didn 't hammer away at that point, how many people call in and everything they begin with everything is great, and I love them, the relationship is perfect, and you get to the butt, and the butt is sex. And making that exception for lousy sex sabotages the relationship in the long term. There's only so far you can kick that can down the road before you realize as you march down the road that that can was a box of nitroglycerin. It explodes and destroys your relationship. Prioritize sexual compatibility and sexual satisfaction. Again, that doesn't mean the sex is always awesome from the start. Sometimes it takes a little bit of work. Sometimes it takes a little bit of effort for two people to really click. And someone who's great at sex with someone that they don't care about, even if they're kind and decent and solicitous and they care about how that person feels and they want that person to have a good time, having sex with someone that they don't care about, they don't see as a long-term partner, they don't care about in that way, can be disinhibiting. That can allow someone to really relax and be themselves sexually. And then they turn around and have sex with somebody they imagine they could have a future with and they seize up and they get very inhibited. Because again, the emotional stakes are so much higher and it takes time for some people to relax and begin to enjoy someone and to be more sexually uninhibited with someone that they care about and see as a long-term partner. That could be the case here. That could happen here. In which case, again, there are no problems. There's just really great things happening in your life. You've got this great friend that you have great fuck buddy sex with. Then you have this good guy that you really like that you see as boyfriend and or husband or non-binary material in the long run, and the sex could get better. So just keep at it. Just keep fucking both these guys while dating only one of them, and in time you will know what and who you should do. Damien Sandler was a guest on the Savage Lovecast last May. We had him on after stumbling over a study. We had him on for a What You Got segment. That's where we invite sex researchers and scientists on to discuss the The results of their recently published studies, and he had brought out a study about erotic asphyxiation, a study that found something a little counterintuitive, that people who accidentally killed a sex partner during consensual kinky choking play were punished, he said, less severely than people who murdered someone by choking them to death. Joining me today to let me know that Damien Sendler is not who he told us he was. Jennings Brown, he's a reporter for Gizmodo and host of the Podcast. The Gateway. Hey Jennings, how are you? Hi Dan, I'm doing well. So uh, Damien Sendler had a long list of credentials and associations and degrees that I rattled off when we introduced him. Damien wasn't who he told us he was.
5: That is true, yeah. It, I, it took me, looking into Damien, uh, took me down a weird rabbit hole um, and it was very difficult to fact check. He makes a lot of claims um, and he's appeared in a lot of Uh, media outlets, and one of those being uh, Savage Lovecast, and so as much as I uh, am happy to be on the show, I'm I'm sorry it's under uh, these circumstances, but yeah, you know, I just wanted to, I called you last week because I wanted to kind of get an understanding of his process of getting on the show to see how he, what he, if he reaches out, if people reach out to him, and uh, you were, you know, help me understand what he does.
2: Now, it was published in an obscure journal. It was republished at the National Institutes of Health. Uh, And we had been talking last spring about asphyxiation, erotic asphyxiation play, which just, you know, point of order here. It's very dangerous. It's not something that I can recommend that anybody do. People who do erotic asphyxiation solo have... Died at a regular clip. It seems we're always hearing about people who've engaged non-erotic asphyxiation, including people who know better, uh, people who are themselves have been kink educators and, and died. And he was claimed he had done this study looking at people who had done erotic asphyxiation with partners and killed someone and, and published the results of this study and claimed to be all these things. And he's not just, just run us through Damien Sendler's, uh, fabrications or, or, or fibs about who Damien Sendler is.
5: Well, if you if you look him up online and you read about him on uh you know, Vice, Playboy, Men's Health, Women's Health, uh, Bustle, Insider, all of these publications that he uh has been quoted in, um, you know, it says that he studied at Harvard Medical School in Columbia and NYU and and sometimes the language is foggy, but um but you know, when I asked him point blank, he told me that he got his his MD and his PhD from Harvard Medical School, um, you know that he uh, had a gold medal of service from President Obama. That he was the youngest elected member of the American Psychiatric Association and all these other, uh, these other psychological associations. I mean, it was just like this laundry list, and he looks like the one of the most accomplished uh, twenty-year-old, twenty-eight-year-olds in medicine. Um, but but just some simple googling, I started looking into him and realizing that it didn't really check out. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I, you know, I, I asked if he wanted to come in. He seems pretty eager to talk to media. So, um, you know, I, I he met me and I had a pretty open mind, but he immediately started talking and uh, about just all of these sort of pipe pop psychological ideas that just kind of set off some red flags. And then, you know, he was just telling me these these blatant lies that I just kind of checked with, with basic Googling initially. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I finally asked him about it. And he sort of deflected, and and then um, you know after that conversation and after you know he had lied to me so many times, I, I looked further into him and just kind of fell down the rabbit hole of this character that he sort of created that has gone and, and shared all of these really unusual studies um, about paraphilias like like bestiality and necrophilia and choking um, choking um, and they sensitive topics where we need more research but we need it to be done carefully and by people who aren't um lying about their credentials (laughs) and possibly falsifying their
2: research you shared a tape of your conversation with him and when you confront him about the fact that he's clearly making shit up uh here's what he had to say in defense of himself
6: Well, again, that's sort of subjective, right? Um, Isn't everyone sort of, you know, misrepresenting themselves in in every way, right? It's highly subjective, right? Um, And you have to understand that in the world where people use, you know, even like the president of this country uses Twitter uh, and creates falsehoods every day, right? Uh, You have to think to yourself about, okay, you know, how do we then quantify the degree of guilt that you can do, right?
2: So basically he's arguing because Donald Trump is a liar and that sometimes people misrepresent themselves on the internet. On the internet, nobody knows if you're a dog is basically his argument. It's okay for him to falsify all of his credentials and lie about the research that he's doing.
5: I mean, that was kind of the one time when he really seemed earnest and made a good point. I mean, we're living in a new era where, you know, people are realizing that lies don't Matter as much as they 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 thought they used to. I mean, uh, and, and yeah, if somebody can kind of build their entire business career on lies and and misrepresentations, and then you know become the leader of the free world, what's to stop this kind of charismatic, well-dressed serial liar from, you know, warping his credentials into being, you know, this medical luminary.
2: Now, I don't want to let myself off the hook here. We want, I want to be held accountable for how this guy got on the show. When I saw that study at the NIH, I didn't realize it wasn't published originally by the NIH. It was just republished at the NIH website. And that is more permeable than I assumed it would be or than I knew it would be. Is that not true?
5: Uh, I, I'm not sure how it got on NIH. Uh I, I have to <laughs> look into that. But uh yeah, it was it was published on a, a forensic journal. You know, there's there's a lot of misconceptions around studies and, and I, I spoke to uh one of the founders of Retraction Watch, which is a watchdog for um for academic studies and you know he said even the, the peer reviewed ones are you know, they're a filter. They're not, you know, a, a seal of approval. I mean it's it it doesn't prove that Um, that this is...
2: Right, someone can falsify their research, submit it to peer review. There's been lots of cases where people, you know, that's why we talk about science needs to be replicable. There's lots of cases where people push their research out in the world, and it is peer-reviewed and studied, and then when someone tries to replicate the results of that study, they find they can't, and the research has to be retracted because there's some flaw, either unintentional in their methodology, or intentional. They were cooking it, or lying about it, or making shit up, and that's why you sometimes hear about things being retracted Uh, Mm -hmm. after further studies are Done So it's not like something being published means, oh, my God, this is the truth on, you know, on the tablets come down from the mountain, unassailable. Like you publish it so people can sail it, so people can try to tear it apart. And that's how you find out whether something is actually true or not when it withstands the test of time and the test of further study, And so I'm not saying that, you know, I had somebody on because it was in a, you know, what I thought was a peer-reviewed publication and on the NHS and therefore credible and therefore absolutely the truth. But I had him on and and I took the study at face value and I took him at face value because I thought if this study is published, even if he's, you know, maybe lying about the data or he misinterpreted his own data, that he is who he says he is. At the very least, he is who he says he is if he's published. But you can't even rely on that, it seems. And to me, that kind of makes my head explode.
5: Yeah, it was it was difficult for me to, to, to fact check a lot of these things because they are institutions that you know, for for HIPAA reasons or you know, private reasons, they they can't share this information.
2: Because I do feel really bad, listeners. I feel bad that we had somebody on the show who was lying about who they were and may have been lying about having done this research at all, and the conclusions that they came to can all be fucking fabulous bullshit and i don't like to have bullshit or liars on my show i like to be the only bullshitter on my show thank you very much um and i'm really uh, i appreciate uh jennings what you've done here in looking into who this guy was and who this guy claims to be and obviously who this guy is not we will be pulling down this episode and in future if someone's published you know the assumption never was that what they published is absolutely the last word you know what they published is an observation and some conclusions, uh, and there will be further study, and we'll see if it stands the test of time. But the assumption was if they were published, they were who they said they were, and I can't even make that assumption now, and I won't again.
5: I well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I'm happy to hear that some good will come of this, and that people will you know be more careful. I mean, in my my industry as well. I mean, this this guy, a lot of journalists are probably going to have to issue corrections after this article comes out.
2: Well, we're issuing a correction right now. We will be pulling down the interview uh, that we did with Damien Sendler, and we're going to erect some filters uh, in the future and not make the assumption we made uh, about Damien Sendler about anyone else. So Jennings Brown, uh, you write for Gizmodo. The piece, uh, we're we're speaking before the piece is published, uh, but where can people who are interested in reading your takedown of Damien Sendler find your piece? Uh,
5: The article's on gizmodo.com. Uh, and if you have any uh tips for me um you know you can email me at jennings.brown@gizmodo.com at It's you know if you know anything about Damien or anybody else who's doing some some interesting or unusual stuff in uh, therapy or the spiritual world or anything like that you know i'd I'd, ha- I'm, I'd i'd like to hear about it and look into it
2: yeah and always beware of what sounds too good to be true or it sounds like it's just Somebody trying to tickle your tits because <laughs> this study, you know, this study was just such savage love cast bait. I don't know if he wrote it for us or wrote it in hopes of getting on this show. Uh, that seems like a lot of effort to go to just to get on my uh, dumb podcast. But it really was low, slow and over the plate and very tempting for us because it was a topic that we continued and to talk about. And still continue to talk about. Uh, and that was part of the trap that we walked into. And we are going to make every effort not to fall into that trap again. Thank you so much. Please go read the piece at gizmodo.com about Damien Sendler. Thanks again, uh, Jennings, for, for the work that you've done. All right. Thank you.
3: Hi, Dan. I am a cisgendered male. I am calling about my husband. I, I love my husband. We've been married for about four years and together for seven we have an open marriage, but my partner typically likes to only engage in threesomes, as he's uncomfortable with the idea of me being alone with someone else. We violated these terms of agreements many times in the past. I more than he. I significantly more than he. I think my husband is incredibly sexy, but now I can't even get an erection when we're alone together, and I'm, you know, asked to top him. I noticed that if I'm having sex with a stranger alone, then it's no problem. Am I bored? I don't think so. I mean, I I want to have, I I just want to have mind-blowing sex with my partner again. Yes, I'd like to have sex with other men occasionally alone, but I myself am uncomfortable with even asking for that again from my husband because I see how uncomfortable it makes him. I'm trying to accept this as maybe a price of admission. I just want to be able to top my husband again. Dan, please help.
2: So I don't want to shrink you. I don't want to put you on my imaginary couch. But seems to me that right now there's this thing you want to do. You want to have sex with other men alone. And it also seems that your husband sometimes wants to have sex with other men alone. You say that you have an open marriage and the agreement was threesomes only, but you have both violated that agreement. So there's something that you both want that violates the agreement that you both made with each other. You say that you want it more. I'd be interested to get your husband alone and ask him how he feels about that. He wants it too. sex on his own with other guys, just as you do. But right now your husband represents psychologically, perhaps erotically, the reason you can't, you can't do this other thing that you also enjoy and may be very important to your sense of sexual fulfillment and sexual self expression, which is to get with and occasionally top other men and then There's your husband, and he wants you to top him, and you want to top him, but all he represents to you erotically in that moment is impossibility. Why you can't, not why you can. And maybe your dick is punishing him and punishing you because you guys haven't confronted this conflict in your relationship, and you're attempting to dance and fuck around it. And I would encourage you to confront it directly and stop dancing and stop attempting to fuck around it because it's not working. You aren't capable of getting hard when the time comes to fuck your husband and that's something that you need to address directly and with honesty and i think renegotiating the terms of your open relationship may be part of that agreement now everybody doesn't get everything they want your husband may have very legitimate reasons why he wants the outside sex to be something that you two do only together so only threesomes And you're going to have to find a way to make topping your husband as exciting for you as topping those other guys, those strangers. So I would ask you what are the circumstances when you top those other guys, when you top strangers? Not in your bedroom, not in your house. I assume you're somewhere else. Maybe just you and your husband getting somewhere else. You and your husband. Heading to a public sex environment. You and your husband going to a bathhouse if you like that kind of environment. Not everybody does. I don't. But maybe you guys do. You go to the bathhouse. Get the room with a sling in it, with a door. Close that door. Fuck each other in this strange place. Your husband will never be a bit of strange. But you can take your husband someplace strange. And that may, being in that sexy environment, being in a place where you can hear other people fucking, that may give your dick the boost it needs. Also, something that can give your dick the boost it needs... Pills, boner pills. They're not just for people who physiologically have a hard time uh, obtaining or sustaining an erection. They also help people who sometimes psychologically have a problem obtaining or sustaining an erection, as they say in the ads. They can get you over the hump. They can get you back to humping the husband. And then once you've done it a few times with the pills, thanks to the pills, you'll find yourself doing it again in the absence of the pills. But work on making sex with the husband as exciting as sex with these strangers, which means not just falling into bed with each other after a long day of carping about housework and bills and taking care of the lawn. That means really intentionally, just like when you find somebody strange, you're on Grindr, you're going out, you're searching through the apps, you're looking for this person and landing them. You have to earn and land each other to make sex with each other as exciting and sexy as sex with some stranger. And that means getting someplace else with him with the same person with this guy that you're in love with and have been in love with for seven years and been married to for four make sex with him as much of an adventure as sex with a stranger can be to the extent that it can be because he's still going to be your husband but mix it up and you may find yourself just as excited to get back in his pants and back in his ass as you are to get into the pants and asses of new and different guys
7: oh hi um This is um, someone calling from the Pacific Northwest. I identify as straight, but my husband does identify as bisexual. Um, And for 15 years, we were monogamous, but we've recently opened up our relationship. Um, My husband being bisexual does have interest in in having sex um, with men. Um, Me identifying as straight, I don't don't really have any interest of doing anything else. except for being monogamous. So there is kind of like a a weird power dynamic has kind of opened up in our relationship because of that. And even though I have given my husband permission to be, to be open and we are now a non-monogamous couple, the thing that I personally am dealing with is that it's hard to accept the fact he is having new experiences and new relationships. Um, And it did like initially revitalize our relationship, which is great. But I realized that revitalization does not last forever. And I'm kind of at this point where I'm like, when does the benefits of his new relationship, like the benefits of the fun and excitement he's having, how important is that to the kind of hurt? And sadness I'm feeling because, you know, I'm home with my six-year-old son where he's off having these fun relationships. I don't really know where the equity lies. I don't know really how to get over the sadness. I have a lot of confusion right now because I want to be GGG and I want to accept where our relationship is going because we were monogamous for 15 years. But I don't know. I really don't know how to deal with this new heartbreak.
2: For your newly open marriage to work, it's really got to work for both of you. And I think based on the details that you shared, it may be that your husband has lost sight of that in his excitement after 15 years of monogamous behavior to finally get back on the dick. So you need to have a chat with him and I would be happy to give him a call and have a chat with him myself if he wanted to sick me on him. You need to have a chat with him about how you make this work for both of you because if he is running off and not just occasionally having sex with other men but having other relationships and ditching you at home with your small child and you have become his roommate and nanny and not so much his sex partner anymore, that's a problem. And it's a problem not just for you, you at home with your sadness and your six-year-old. It's a problem for him because if you're miserable, that will ultimately sabotage your marriage. And presumably he doesn't want this marriage to fall apart. And I would hope he wouldn't want this marriage to fall apart because – Not a lot of people can sign off on an open relationship. Not a lot of women out there talk to the bi guys of the world. Not a lot of women out there are cool with their husbands being bi, cool with their bi husbands if their husbands are out to them about being bi, having male sex partners in addition to the sex that they have at home with the wife. And so your husband has a very valuable thing, a very worthwhile thing, a good thing going in this marriage to you. And he needs to be careful. You say you've recently opened this relationship. He needs to be careful that in his excitement, he doesn't lose sight of your needs, of your feelings, of your emotional security, of the primacy of this relationship, his relationship with you. And so he's got to slow his roll. He's got to climb off the dick for a minute or climb onto the dicks a little bit more slowly or space them a little bit further apart. And lavish some time and affection and attention on you and gratitude. He should be incredibly grateful that you are able to accommodate him and all of who he is sexually and allow him to be everything he is sexually and remain his wife, remain partners. But again, that's going to fall apart if you are angry or resentful or miserable and unhappy. All that said, You recently opened your relationship and it sounds like you opened it at his instigation. I talk about people who are poly under duress, PUDs. I talk about people who are open relationships under duress. Usually when somebody opens a relationship because they're poly or they just want to open it up. And poly is a kind of openness, but openness isn't always poly. It sounds like you guys are trying to do the poly thing if he's not just having sex with other people, other men, but having relationships with them. You're doing a bit of the poly thing. You're a PUD. Poly under duress. Most relationships that open open because one person wanted it and the other person gave in. The other person might have agreed intellectually or agreed to open the relationship because it's the only way to save the relationship. And they are, like you, poly under duress. Most people who are poly under duress either get out of the relationship in time because poly doesn't work for them. Or at a certain point, poly begins to work for them. And the under duress part goes away. They're no longer puds. They're just pus. They're just poly. Right now, it's not working for you. What's it going to take? What does he need to do to make it work for you, this non-monogamous relationship? Maybe it's limited to openness right now. You don't want him to have relationships with other people. Maybe it's a more occasional thing. He is the parent of a small child, not just you. You aren't just the parent of a small child. He is too. And if he isn't Living up to his responsibilities as a parent and sharing those responsibilities in an equitable fashion for you, he's going to fuck up his relationship. He's going to fuck up his marriage. So, if you can adjust the settings, if you can tweak the dials so that the openness isn't causing you so much resentment because it isn't so constant, there aren't other relationships, he's not as distracted, it might begin to work for you and you might move from pud to puh. But that can't happen if he doesn't know. The risks he's running right now, if you haven't expressed to him how unhappy you are, not with the openness, but with the pace of the openness, not with the openness, but with the neglect, the neglect of you, the neglect of his responsibilities that you can understand. Allow that, yeah, you were excited. You got out over your skis. <laughs> you bent over your skis a little bit and it, you, know, you were running around in a way that made me feel abandoned and you need to adjust that. You need to dial that back. If you value me, if you value your family, if you value your marriage, you need to dial that back so I am more comfortable being in this open relationship with you. And you want to be in a successful open relationship with him, you wouldn't have opened up the relationship if you didn't want it to be the success. You were trying to set him up for failure. So as with most things, you need to have a conversation with your partner. You need to express to him why you were unhappy and you need to open his eyes to the consequences, to the risks he's running and what he may lose if he can't strike a balance between his responsibilities and his love and affection for you and your sex life with him and these outside sexual contacts that you are willing to allow for so that he is happy and fulfilled. Good luck.
8: Hey, Dan. Single queer lady in NYC here, and I'm seeking your advice on a Shakespearean ghosting comedy of kinky errors in two acts. At the end of the summer, I matched with a dude on an app, and we really hit it off. Similar values, life experiences, and Frankie Kinks. We met at once for drinks, and we ended up hooking up the second time we got together, but we're pretty much texting every day over the course of six weeks. He had a real hang up over being bi and has never done anything with a guy, and I was really affirmative of it, but I also felt uncomfortable that after our first date, all of the texts from him were just sexual. After we hooked up, he started to disappear. Noticing the behavior, I proactively reached out to him, let him know that he'd be interested in being friends on account of us having so much in common, and he agreed, but ultimately ghosted completely. Well, fast forward to a few months later, I've made a discreet Kinky OKC profile, and I match with a Kinky Torso profile. We start chatting, we really hit it off, and when we exchange numbers, waka waka, it turns out to be the same guy. Reiterate the friendship message, letting him know that I'm still down. Cool if it's not. It would just be nice to, you know, conclusively know. Um, And he says he's good to be friends and the chatting begins again. Quickly it becomes sexual. A lot about his desire for dicks, holding them, sucking them, and so on. Again, I try and be affirming, supportive, and respectful of boundaries because, hey, that's what friends are for. But when I reached out later to him for his opinion on something related to communicating about my kinks, he ends up ghosting again, completely. So logically, I'm all there and I know that his double ghosting behavior is shitty and reflective of him and not me, but it's been a few months now and I still think about him in the situation more than I'd like. It doesn't help that recently his vanilla profile has been popping up all over my dating apps. Everyone says to fuck off and forget it, but I kind of want to reach out and just acknowledge that, you know, the behavior is hurtful, shaming, and really not cool, and it would just be nice to know why he ghosted me. I guess I feel like I'm almost complacent in the ghosting by not saying anything. What do you think? Ghosting is awful, period, but do you think we have more accountability to each other when there's shared kinks and vulnerabilities that have already been laid out on the table? I'd be curious to hear your thoughts.
2: When someone straight out asks you if you want to be friends, it's a difficult thing to say no. No, I am not interested in being friends. This guy is not interested in being your friend. He was momentarily interested perhaps in pursuing something with you sexually. That's why there was that first meeting and then that second meeting and then you hooked up and then he pulled away. He began to ghost on you and you reached out you proactively said hey you're kind of disappearing if you're not interested sexually we can at least be friends we have a lot in common we're in the same place and that was very mature and very adult of you unfortunately you wasted that maturity and adultiness on someone who isn't similarly mature as adult and so he lied he was like oh yeah yeah let's be friends and then he ghosted, and then." Pina Colada song, Waka Waka, you were brought back together again because he had a torso ad on Cupid, and you had an anonymous kink ad and your kinks match, even though there's something about the way you two function sexually that didn't leave him wanting more. And that's totally fine and totally legitimate. We don't have to keep sleeping with people after that first time we sleep with them. If we determine that it just doesn't work for us, you wouldn't want him to keep sleeping with you under those circumstances. You wouldn't want a man in your life who expected that because you slept with him once you were obligated somehow to keep sleeping with him or, or indeed have any sort of friendship or relationship with him if you weren't interested in it. It would be better if he stopped lying to you and you keep asking him if he'd like to be friends and he keeps saying yes because it feels like the polite thing to say in that moment. be good, better, obviously, if he didn't mislead you. But there's what he's telling you with his words, yeah, let's be friends, and then what he's telling you with his actions. And it's clear that he doesn't mean it and you should understand that by now so why did he keep talking to you about dicks when he said yes let's be friends and didn't mean it because he likes to talk about dicks and so he was just sending out into the ether which is kind of how he viewed you not as a person not somebody he had a relationship with not even a friend just somebody that he was sending out Boop, 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 dick messages too. dick thoughts too. and somebody was reading and receiving them and that turned him on not that you were his friend and he enjoyed sharing that with you as a person but that that was registering somebody out there knew his dirty secret and then when you after receiving all his messages about dicks wanted to talk about your own kinks in your own life he ghosted because he's not interested in you as a person in a way he was just scrawling graffiti on a wall and hoping someone would read it or ensuring someone would read it by sending it to you to be read, knowing that you would read it, but not caring that it was you in particular that was reading it because he doesn't care about you in particular. All of that can be easily inferred from this. Yes, ghosting is shitty. Yes, it hurts people's feelings. You talk to people who've been ghosted on, and invariably they have also ghosted on people, it seems. So when it comes to this topic, we're all victims of it and guilty of it. And a lot of us are hypocrites because people have a hard time just straight up saying, Hey, that was fun. That one time we had sex, it was okay, but I'm not interested in pursuing anything further and I'm going to get on with my life or I'm not interested in being friends. And so I have to politely decline your request to be friends. People have a hard time being blunt like that. And I don't think that people always want that kind of bluntness. People prefer the white lie. It's not you. It's me often. I hear from people who don't like that white lie, who would like to know the real reason they got dumped. But sometimes the real reasons are so scalding and so detrimental to someone's self-esteem to have laid out before them that it can be cruel, unnecessarily cruel to just reject someone straight up and honestly and, and take off the reasons why you're rejecting them. I'm not excusing ghosting as a practice. I think it's shitty. I think people should use their words. I talk about that all the time. And people shouldn't say things that they know aren't true. I want to be your friend. Oh, yeah, I'd love to get together again when they have no intention of getting together again. But this does seem to be an emerging or emergent or already emerged kind of social norm that the ghosting, the the going silent is the rejection. It is the no. And it's up to us all of us as individuals to take no for an answer, even when that no comes in a not very convincing disguise. Hey, Dan, I'm a 29 year old cis hetero
9: man, and I have a question about bad sex. So my past long term relationships have always been really great sexually. Uh, We've explored bondage and the kink community. I've been in an open relationship and I really enjoy that kind of uh, exploration with my partners. Uh, Recently, I started kind of seeing this woman. She's 27. And when we first hooked up, she was very upfront with me about the fact that she's very inexperienced sexually. Uh, Up to this point in her life, she's she's had sex fewer than 10 times. So I agreed to take things slow and only do things that she's comfortable with doing. But it's been about four or five months now. We've shared a bed, spent the night dozens of times together, but our physical relationship is just so whack. She's always texting me and telling me about how horny she is and like sending me illicit photos and things. But when we physically get together, she just doesn't interact with me at all. She'll lay there and allow me to kiss her, but she doesn't kiss my neck or touch my body or tug at my clothing or reach for my dick or anything like that she doesn't make any noises and if i at any point stop kissing her like that's it end of end of interaction so she'll never take the wheel even for a moment and uh, once while making out i said something like oh god i want to eat your pussy and she laughed at me and she said what like why isn't that gross kind of thing so all of this has left me feeling really undesirable because I didn't know it could be so hard for someone to physically express their desire for someone. You know, if she wants me and she wants my body, why is it so hard for her to reciprocate in any way? And I've tried talking with her about all of this openly, but in her mind, I guess our quote unquote sex life is great and she's doing all the right moves. So I just don't know where to go from here. I'm at the point where getting intimate with her is more of a source of stress for me than one of pleasure because I know things always end up going the same way. And I'm super demotivated when it comes to the thought of even pursuing sex. And that's just a real shitty place to be. So I don't know. Are we just sexually incompatible? Should I try to break things off? What do you think, Dan? Thanks. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You are sexually incompatible. Yes, you should break things off. You have my permission to end this relationship with this pillow princess, this doomy bottom. There is a necrophiliac out there somewhere that she would be the ideal partner for. There is some guy who wants to be with someone who lays very still and does nothing and is unresponsive. And the longer you are with this woman, the longer you prevent those two people who belong together from finding each other. The girlfriend you've got now and the necrophiliac who she is the person of their dreams. They need to get together and you need to get the fuck out of there. You've tried. You've had the conversation with her. She finds the sex that you're having together or that you're having on her, this fleshlight routine, satisfactory. You don't. That's all you need to know. That is enough. That is grounds for ending a relationship. You ask where you should go from here. Go to the door. Go to the exit. Go, 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 go. Get the fuck out of there. She's a nice person. I don't think she's a motherfucker, but you definitely, you definitely are in DTMFA territory here.
1: Hi, Dan. Uh, This is a 42-year-old hetero Swiss woman in Chicago, and um, I have a question about uh, my fiance's kinks and sort of keeping it respectful in the bedroom. Um, I'm pretty vanilla. We have a great sex life. Love having sex with him, but every, literally almost every single time um, we are having sex, he loves to talk about his kinks and his kinks are watching me fuck another guy, watching me fuck another girl. Um, loves to talk about it, and that's absolutely not not my kink whatsoever. And so when it happens and we're in the moment, it just kind of makes me tense. It makes me a little nervous, but I, of course, don't want to shame him. I want to be G. So I guess my question for you is sort of like, where's my space to maybe say, can we not talk about this all the time? You know, is that or do I just sort of leave it be and let things roll or do I sort of set boundaries and say, because it doesn't really make me comfortable So just wanted to hear your thoughts about sort of setting boundaries on kinky talk in the bedroom.
2: Good giving and game. We need to review that concept regularly, it seems. And not for you, caller. I think often we need to review it for the kinksters out there. Good giving and game for anything within reason. That last one, that last G, game for anything, always qualified with Within reason, it is unreasonable for your partner, for your fiance to expect that you enjoy hearing about his kink every single fucking time that you two have sex. That is not reasonable. And you can, call her object to being subjected to that. Not once in a while, like GGG means you indulge your partner's interests and in kinks, the reasonable ones, the ones that can be indulged. The ones you can indulge even if you don't share them that the indulging of doesn't leave you curled up in the fetal position in the bathroom sobbing after. But the fact that he won't shut up about this ever, the fact that he doesn't have the the sense to realize that the script of his that he finds terribly, terribly erotic isn't Shared. It's not erotic for you, and so if every time that you two go to bed together, it's his script, his fantasies, his dirty talk, and you have to play along with that, he doesn't realize that that's going to make sex a tedious chore for you, and in the end, is going to make sex something that you dread. Does he not have any common fucking sexual sense? Apparently not. So you're going to have to slap some common fucking sexual sense into him. And say, look, whatever you need to think about during sex, you know, if you need to unspool that fantasy in your head every t- single time we have sex, I can't police your thoughts. But I don't want to hear about it every single time, maybe every fourth or fifth time. Maybe we pick a night where we indulge in cuckold fantasy, dirty talk and role play. And I might be then more enthusiastic and more participatory. But I'm not going to be enthusiastic. I'm not going to want to participate if it means that this is all we ever do think about or talk about or fantasize about together when we have sex because it's not my fantasy. It's your fantasy. And our sex life is for the both of us. And you know, when someone who unspools a bunch of dirty talk during sex that the other person just absolutely isn't into, it can make the other person feel like a flashlight, like something that's being masturbated inside of a tool and not a partner. Now there are people in long-term committed exclusive sexual relationships where one person has a fantasy that is central to their erotic inner life and it needs an outlet, but you got to strike a balance. Presumably, caller, you have fantasies too. What are those fantasies? Do they get play? Do you get to talk about them? Is he solicitous? Kinksters, if you have a GGG partner who's indulging you, GGG them back, indulge them back. And sometimes that means indulging them in pure, straight up, unalloyed vanilla sex with nothing kinky going on and no dirty talk about the kinks that you wish were going on at that moment. GGG is what we should be for each other, particularly important in sexually exclusive relationships, good giving and game for each other, indulging each other. That doesn't mean if one person has a kink, that kink takes over the relationship and that kink is the only thing on the menu forever and ever and ever and ever being good. Giving and game shouldn't be a trap that a vanilla person falls into in a relationship with somebody who has kinks. GG is a default setting. It is a, an approach to sex that that both people, the kinky and the vanilla person in that kink divergent relationship both bring to the table so that everybody feels sexually fulfilled, that everybody feels like they're being heard and their needs are being met and that their erotic inner life can be fully expressed and that they are Indulged. Both people are indulged. See, I want to grab your husband and shake him. I also want to give you a little warning before you marry this guy. If this is how he is before the wedding, I worry that he's going to become more insistent and pushy and bullying about this kink after the wedding. So, this is something that you are absolutely positively never going to do. You're never going to have sex with another woman or another man in front of him. You are not going to cuckold him. I hope you've made that clear. I hope you haven't been afraid, as many women are, to tell their partners no when the answer is no, even someone that they feel comfortable and safe with. Often women, because men are scary, testosterone-soaked dick monsters, and women are socialized to defer to men, women often will find themselves just out of habit not saying no to a man they can say no to and can feel comfortable saying no to, a trusted partner. Because no, it's just something women don't say to men. So if you've been saying to him, we'll see, I don't know, not right now, not something I'm interested in pursuing at this moment, maybe down the road, I might, maybe, you know, there's a circumstance under which I might be comfortable. If you've given him false hope about this, you need to yank that false hope back. If this is absolutely positively never, ever, 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 ever going to happen, tell him now, because if he thinks once you're married, if he just keeps talking about this long enough that you may get to that point where You'll do it. You'll go there because you've led him to believe it might be possible because you haven't thrown down the no, throw down that no now. Let him know not to live in hope about this because it's never going to happen if indeed it is never going to happen. And then let him know and be very clear about your boundaries, about your limits, that this is something this is a fantasy that you are willing, even perhaps occasionally excited to indulge in because you take pleasure in the pleasure it gives him. One out of four times, one out of five times. What's your metric? What's your percentage? What's your number? Give it to him and then hold him to it.
10: Hi, Dan. I am in my early thirties on the East coast. Curious to get your thoughts on a situation. I've gone on four dates with a guy who I'm into for a lot of reasons. I love his laugh. He has shit together. We have a lot in common, but there's one problem and it's something I don't think I can get over He has bad teeth. I'm not just talking bad as in they're jacked up, but a couple are what I can only assume are rotted. There's visible black stains. And while I have gone a couple hours at times not focusing on them, I just got home from date number four and I couldn't stop thinking about it the whole time. I know it's shallow of me to end it with this otherwise seemingly great guy over his teeth, but I don't think I can move past the superficial thought. And I think I should probably end it before we go further i can tell he's definitely into me so i don't even know how to word the quote-unquote breakup curious to know your
2: thoughts if you don't want to continue to date this guy if you don't want to continue to see him you don't have to continue to see him and you can be arbitrary and you can attach importance to something that's appearance related without it necessarily being shallow an indictment of your character if he has bad teeth because you know his teeth are jacked teeth are crooked there's just a Physiological, physical thing, didn't get braces from a family that couldn't afford braces. That's one thing. And I think that that's maybe something that would be very shallow to dump somebody over. Crooked teeth. But if he has terrible teeth, if he has black and dirty teeth because he won't see a dentist, because he has some crazy hang-up about going to the dentist, uh, because he practices terrible personal hygiene, doesn't brush his teeth, doesn't floss his teeth, therefore his teeth are rotting in his head, that is indicative of, that is an example of, terrible judgment, bad judgment. I think that we look for partners with good judgment. If you can partner with somebody long-term, you want to be with someone who's not going to leave the gas on and blow up the house. You want to partner with somebody who's not going to run up tons of credit card debt. You want to partner with somebody who isn't going to serve you a raw chicken salad. You want to be with somebody with good judgment. And early in a relationship, I think a lot of us subconsciously are looking out not just for the red flags about abuse and abusers and, you know, shitty controlling behavior. We're also looking out for red flags that say this person has terrible judgment. And if he has shitty, awful teeth, rotting teeth, because poor personal hygiene, because irrational fear of the dentist, because of phobia. Now, phobia, of course, some people argue is an example of perhaps mental illness. And maybe I'm being ableist here, but yeah, these are markers for bad judgment. And you are, within your rights, and people end relationships every day, long-term established relationships, because the person they're with has demonstrated shitty judgment. But all that said, if you don't want to see someone, you don't have to keep seeing them. As for what to tell him, good for you, gold star. You're not going to ghost. You're not just going to disappear on this person that you've had four dates with. Do you tell him the truth? I don't know. I don't know. People say they want the truth. People say they don't get closure unless they hear the truth. People say, oh, they said this, you know, obvious white lie and didn't level with me, didn't give me the real reason. But this is a good example of a case where, what do you think, folks, everybody listening? Would you want to hear this if this was the real reason somebody was dating you four dates, but they're so distracted by your horrible, dirty, stained, rotting teeth that they just can't see being with you? Would you want to be told that? It might be something this guy needs to hear. He may look in the mirror and not see his teeth or not perceive them to be the problem that others do. And maybe if he was acquainted with how problematic his rotting teeth are for potential romantic partners, he would go to the goddamn dentist and do something about it. You could be doing him a favor, caller, by telling him that the teeth are a deal breaker, the teeth are an issue. But would he want to hear it? Would you, if these were your teeth we were talking about, everybody else out there listening right now, would you want to hear it?
4: Hi, Dan. I'm in my late 30s and I'm dating a guy who's in his early 40s. We met and it felt like love at first sight, which we both know to not trust uh, as people who have dated a lot of people. But we acknowledged our strong feelings for each other and kept going with it. And in the first month, we met each other's parents, acknowledging how crazy fast that was. Um, Part of it was that it was the holidays and our parents are local. And he was talking about things far in the future with me and um, and saying really loving things like how beautiful I am and how he's always, um, he's been looking for someone exactly like me and, um, and how when he looks at me, he sees his future. And I um, wanted to wait to have intercourse. I just felt so special about him that I wanted to wait three months until we had PIV. We did everything but, it was almost everything but but um, so we had this um, romantic getaway planned for finally having sex and it was good but I thought that we were going to be continuing along this trend of becoming closer and closer and thinking farther and farther into the future and we had already talked about what type of wedding we would want if we were to get married with like a wink like I'm thinking about you but it's not appropriate to be thinking about you I just like all that type of talk about things far in the future and like serious commitment was absent from the weekend and I was really upset about it so I ended up bringing it up and he was really kind and warm in his response but he didn't I didn't feel reassured. He said that his feelings are the same and he's here to stay and that I should believe him. But then the problem wasn't that I should believe him that his feelings are strong, it's that I I want I'm ready to say I love you. I'm ready to like continue what we were on the path we were on. So I brought it up again and it didn't it didn't go well. He just said that he felt frustrated that I wasn't believing him and that his feelings haven't changed, even though I I thought I was perceiving a change in him. I thought he was being less affectionate. And I told him I it, regardless of what happened or if anything's changed, I need more affection. I need a lot of verbal and um, physical affection. And he was like, it sounds like you need, you need to be told how I feel about you every day. And I was like, yeah, that'd be really nice. And he just said that that was asking too much. And, um, and that he feels like he, his feelings aren't enough for me right now, which was accurate. So um, I'm trying to give him space. I'm dropping it. I, I'm i just going to look at this as, well. I don't know, what should I look at this as? Um, I know I'm being crazy, or am I being crazy? Is this just the end of the honeymoon period, and I should just relax? Another part of this is that I'm in my late 30s, so and I've never thought about children before, but I was thinking about children with him.
2: Always makes me a little uncomfortable when people end their calls with, am I being crazy? Because it puts me in the position of having to answer that particular question. And usually, often, when someone asks, am I being crazy? The answer is, yes, you're being a little crazy. Not so crazy that you can't perceive how your actions may be playing with the other person. How they may be interpreted or misinterpreted. But yeah, yeah, lady, You're being a little fucking nuts here. You met this guy three months ago, 12 weeks, and you just had that romantic getaway weekend. And you're upset that during this romantic getaway weekend, all this really premature talk about the future, about weddings, about the life you two were going to have together. He dialed it back. Maybe he decided that he wanted to live in the moment for a moment or for a weekend, or maybe... He sobered the fuck up that infatuation stage. You call it the honeymoon stage, that infatuation stage. When you're just crazy about another person, it's a lot like being intoxicated. And when you're intoxicated, things come out of your mouth that may or may not be true. When you really are overwhelmed with this, you know, when the endorphins are flooding your system and the happy hormones are pinging around and you're wet and hard constantly for this other person. It's almost as if you want this feeling to last forever and you begin to think about a future and then some of those things about the future you're imagining with this person fall out of your mouth because you have terrible judgment or your filters aren't functioning and then you realize you've said things that could be true. You might want a future with this person but you couldn't possibly know that at this stage. You've only been 12 weeks. You really barely know each other. So the wedding that you stupidly began to talk about at week three, when you begin to sober up, when you pass out of the infatuation stage and into that really the more job interview stage of the relationship, the due diligence stage where you're examining this person with a clear head and trying to determine if they indeed are someone that you could build a life with. Oh, man, you begin to regret those things you said at two, three weeks because you don't want to feel like a liar and you don't want to pull those things back. So maybe you just stop talking about them for a while and try to live in the moment. Because, you know, once you build that future for yourselves, once you are married, once you do live together, you stop talking about the future because you're in the future. It's happening. The future is now. The future is then. But the future is now then. Right. And then you have to live in the moment. And so it sounds to me like this guy right now just wants to tap the brakes and see what living in the moment with you is like and not constantly fantasizing about a future together with the imaginary partner And that's really what you are. When someone barely knows you and you're talking about a future together with that person, you're endowing them with all sorts of wonderful imaginary qualities. Because you don't know them well enough to know if they're all these wonderful things that you hope they are, that they've given you the initial impression they might be. And so you're rounding them up to perfect. And at some point you realize after the infatuation stage wears off that they're not perfect And a future with them won't be as perfect as the future you imagined with them at two or three weeks. And you have to make a cold and calculated decision about whether you want to move forward with this relationship, whether you do want to have a future with this imperfect person, and whether they want to have a future with the imperfect person that you are, because they get to opt in or out also after the infatuation stage wears off. So you're being crazy. Your craziness is sabotaging what could be a good and decent relationship. Give him some space. Give him some time. It's a fine thing to hope. It's a fine thing to be excited about someone. Pour some of that excitement into other ears. Confide in friends. Take up journaling. Start a vlog. No, don't start a vlog. You might find it and that would really seem crazy. Just put it somewhere else. Some of your excitement So that you can be a little bit more chill with him, not fake with him, but just a little bit more relaxed with him. And so that he can be a little bit more relaxed with you because you want to see who he is. You should also want to see what living in the moment with him will be like, because you're talking about being with him, not being with some imaginary future with him. Take a good, close look at him. Stop thinking about kids. Stop thinking about weddings. Stop thinking about vacations you'll go on in the future, people you'll meet together in the future, things you'll do together in the future, do things, hang out, be with each other right now. See if it's good because in the future, the right now is really all you got.
1: Hi, Dan. I love the show. I am a 54-year-old heterosexual woman living in the Northwest. Shortly after my father died a few years ago, when my husband and I were being Sexual together, right at the peak of orgasm, I would often start to sob and cry uncontrollably for a little while. Not surprisingly, this was a little bit off putting to my husband, (laughs) as well as surprising and a little scary to myself. So I'm wondering if you've ever heard of this uh, happening to other people or what your take on this might be. It has continued a bit for um, the few years since my father's death. Just curious about your insights.
2: It's funny listening to your call. What I thought of was having sex during a hangover. Have you ever had a really bad hangover or maybe even the flu and a splitting headache and your husband or lover or envy friend is cuddling you in bed and you have that hangover and you suddenly get horny and then there's some kind of weird override where your headache goes away or it recedes into the distance. Somehow your brain shoves that onto a back burner and you're not experiencing it quite as intensely as you were. Before you got horny and you're having sex. And the second you come, the minute you you climax, the split second you have that orgasm, that headache comes a roaring back. It comes right back off the back burner, right to the front of your frontal fucking lobe. And this hangover that you thought maybe because you started to get, you know, get it on and feel a little better, you thought maybe the hangover was gone is back. And that's not exactly what's going on here for you, but that moment when you climax, you have this intense wave of all these happy hormones that surge through your body. Um, and those are, the, you know, those hormones are about you know, feelings and intense feelings. And I, I think there may be some moment where the brain just throws into the foreground other intense feelings that the ramping up to orgasm and the achieving of orgasm kind of shoved onto the back burner and they come rushing back to the front of your mind. And you feel them because of your aroused state, because of your heightened state, because of all of those happy hormones pumping through your body, you feel them more intensely at that moment. And you had this Wires crossing between arousal and climax and grief those were the intense emotions that you were struggling with at the moment and it's if it 's continued all these years since your father 's death, it may be that you know an association was created, a little bit of neuro pathway carving hard wiring took place there 's nothing wrong with crying happy tears during sex. Many people do it 's not only people who 've experienced profound loss or grief who then make this kind of association. many people just find orgasms and and climaxing particularly in an emotionally intense way with someone that they're really bonded with shattering emotionally in in a controlled and contained way and they have a good cry and a a good sob and there's nothing wrong with it and it shouldn't freak you out and it shouldn't freak your partner out it requires what the bdsmers and the kinksters call a little bit of aftercare that there should be some tenderness and and connection. Hopefully your husband, when you cry, doesn't run screaming from the room or jump out of bed to go take a shower, that he holds you and and lets all of those emotions flow out of you and over you, and then you guys can lay there in a happy puddle of afterglow. And then you guys can lay there in that happy afterglow puddle, which is just a little bigger because you got to throw some tears in there as well. All right, before we get to your response calls, some of your tweets – Mari Naomi tweets, I'm so grateful to the writers and podcasters whose words keep me company as I ink page after page of my graphic novel. I would otherwise be quite lonely. Shout out to at Scalzi, shout out to at You're shout out to at Fake Dan Savage, who'll be keeping me and my Wobbly Pete company for the next few days. Happy to keep you company, Mari. Jay Hart la tweet subscribe to the magnum hashtag savage lovecast this week mostly because i was tired of hearing about how much at fake dan savage hates the post office but really glad to hear a fascinating conversation with at johan hari 1012 thank you for subscribing joel thank you to everyone out there who subscribes to the magnum edition of the savage lovecast which is twice as long no ads more guests go to savage to subscribe And finally, that Mina girl tweets, getting coffee in the hotel lobby, and I suddenly hear, she's fucking the shit out of you. You're fucking the shit out of him. And I'm like, what the fuck? Then I realize people are looking my way. Seems somehow I hit play and hashtag Savage Lovecast started playing from the phone in my back pocket. Oh, Mina girl. What's that expression? Sorry, not sorry. I'm kind of sorry about that, but I'm kind of not sorry about that. Hope it wasn't too embarrassing. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on a future episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan. I'm calling about episode 644, and the woman who was worried that her partner was disgusted by continuing to fuck her after five minutes after he came. And uh, I thought you and Nancy were spot on in terms of, helping her think about centering her own pleasure and not worrying about his. But I guess I just also wanted to add that I don't think
5: disgusted people maintain erections. I've never experienced that. What I have experienced is that my partner is so fucking sexy that after I come, I stay hard. So I just want to propose the idea that her
2: pleasure and her being so turned on and into it fucking broke through the refractory period and made your partner turned on and want to keep going. So good job.
5: Hey Dan, this is a call in response to the guy who wanted to know how to squirt more. I've noticed if I jack off every day or every other day, I can shoot to barely pass my belly button ring. But if I go a week without jacking off, I can easily shoot to my chin or mouth. So maybe if that guy goes a little longer between ejaculations, he might be able to squirt better.
6: Hey, Dan from 644 in response to the bisexual male who can't be rough with his serious girlfriends who he has serious feelings for. I'm calling because I align with him in so many ways. Bisexual here and also have had trouble being rough with my serious girlfriends who I have serious feelings for. They want me to be more rough, but I struggle to do it. I cherish the tender sex with them. I'm an animal and can be a total dominant alpha when I fuck other guys. But when it comes to my girlfriends, I struggle. It just takes work, man. Keep working harder. Some things you can and should do are have very good communication with your girlfriend, specifically about what kind of alpha rough stuff she wants. And you gotta tell her during the act to tell you when you've gone too far so that you can keep pushing the boundaries. Smack her ass harder, pull her hair harder, use harsher, nastier words, up until she says, whoa, whoa, that's enough. And then you now know the limits within which you can play and you're going to start to love it and she's going to love it and yeah you can do it man try harder be your girlfriend's alpha and in the meantime keep exploring that cuckold stuff because that's hot too
2: And we're going to leave it there 206 302 2064 is the number here at the Savage Love Cast if you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show give us a buzz 206 302 2064 I will be in Portland Oregon on March 15th for Savage Love Live at Revolution Hall go to SavageLoveCast.com and click on events to buy tickets and to find out where else Savage Love Live is coming and the Hump Film Festival is in LA and Long Beach this week go to HumpFilmFest.com to buy your tickets and again please follow hump film fest on your social media and help us spread the word about our dirty little porn film festival when it comes to your town and our brand new film festival spliff a festival made by stoners for stoners will be in seattle portland and san francisco and denver this spring go to spliffilmfest.com to get all the info and buy your tickets now follow me on twitter at FakeDanSavage. follow jennings brown on twitter at t jennings brown and check out his podcast the gateway it's an investigation podcast into a spiritual guru slash mental charlatan that would appeal to anyone intrigued by fraudsters like damien Sandler. check it out and a quick note of thanks before we go. I have been in Los Angeles for the last five weeks and recording the Savage Lovecast at Earwolf Studios. I want to thank all of the engineers who've helped out, Jordan Duffy, Sam Kuyper, Brendan Burns, Devin Bryant, and Colin Anderson, and also studio manager Matt Appadaka. Thanks to all of you for helping to keep the Savage Lovecast coming. And that Savage Lovecast, of course, is produced by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week on installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.